welcome to episode 209 of the Reformed Brotherhood. I'm Jesse. And I'm Tony, and we are proud members of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. I know this is the point where traditionally I ask you how you're doing. I'm going to switch it up a little bit and say in a preemptive manner that we are into this second episode of a series about communion, about perspectives on communion, about views on communion. And to tease a little bit, I think this episode is going to be super good. I do too. I'm pretty stoked. Is that too forward of yeah, me I to mean, say? Yeah, I mean, usually we good? go into this thinking our episodes are going to be terrible. <laughs> so it feels good to be confident once in a while. Yes, I'll take that. But before we get to all this goodness that's about to happen, let's start with the preemptory goodness, which is our affirmations and denials. Yes. Do you have an affirmation that you'd like to share with us? I do. So it's that time of year, right? We're a top 50 healthcare podcast. So I have to <laughs> do my my civic duty. Uh, I am affirming a uh, sp- specific thing, but I'm affirming flu shots, but I'm specifically okay. affirming drive through flu shots. So interesting. One of the things that, uh, you know, speaking as someone who is actually on the inside of a medical administrative role, um, one of the challenges that's been going on through this pandemic is how do you continue to deliver healthcare without actually putting people more at risk? Right. And, um, one of the things that Dartmouth Hitchcock, which is the hospital that I work at, and I'm sure other hospitals in the area have developed similar things, is doing is developing a drive-through flu clinic. And um, you know, I'm an employee, so I have a special access that I go to to get my flu shot. I have to go at a special time. They have to record a special way. But my wife uh, needed to schedule her appointment for a flu shot, and we literally pulled up to the place. I think it was like. 115 and we rolled out of there at 125 and everything was all set um it was quick it was professional it was it was friendly um nobody was exposed to anybody except the the medical personnel who were helping facilitate uh the flu shot and you know when we rolled out of there it was it was interesting because ashley looked at me and she said well it's really good that they figured this out because just think about how much easier it's going to be to do COVID vaccinations when the time comes. And right so on. a lot of these places are using, uh, they're using flu shot season to sort of develop a rapid deployment and the ability to rapidly deploy and safely deploy COVID vaccines um, in a way that's really quite amazing. So get your flu shot. I know that everybody, th- there's lots of debate and disagreement on vaccinations. I don't want to get into that. Um, some of the arguments are ridiculous. Some of them are less uh, ridiculous. Um, but either way, if you are not one of those people who believes that flu shot should not be gotten, um, and then go get your flu shot and go get it now. Because one of the big challenges right now is, it's funny, I made a joke to my coworkers, we were waiting in line to get into the building. And, you know, you walk into the building, everybody's asked if they have symptoms. And someone behind us coughed. And I was like, man, it's going to be like the Spanish Inquisition out here pretty soon. <laughs> Because pretty soon it's going to be like, well, I don't know if I have the flu or if I have COVID. I don't know. And so they're saying getting the flu shot this year is especially important because it will help us to reduce the number of kind of like mistaken identity cases where someone has the flu and thinks it's COVID or thinks it's COVID, has COVID and thinks it's the flu. And so they don't take the right precautions. So get your flu shot. I'm sure that your local hospital or your local medical care facility has developed a good way to do it. Um, but it's important and it helps, it helps protect people for sure. And especially in the West, we live like really in a blessed place because I got a flu shot this year. 
it was actually put on by my employer. And uh, maybe I can tag onto your affirmation. I sat down in the chair. I got the shot. And it was so amazing that I actually said to the woman who was ministering it, that was the best flu shot I ever got. Yeah. <laughs> like it was, yeah. it was so easy. The whole process was really, really succinct. But also, she just did a really great job yeah. at administering it. She was like slight pinch, and I was, I barely felt it, honestly. Yeah. So if that happens to you, would you give a little encouragement to those who are on the front lines of trying to administer this? Because they really are trying to be helpful, whether it's through an employer or you go to a CVS or you go to a clinic. I think it's worthwhile to provide a little bit of yeah. encouragement. Yeah. Well, and it's funny because we, when I worked in kidney transplant, we would get the really good shots. We'd get like the double dose ones. And oh, yeah. um, it, like we had this medical assistant who would come around and she would go around and do all the flu shots. And she was terrible. I mean, bless her, <laughs> bless her heart. She, she loved her work and she was really good at other elements of her job. But her ability to give shots without like ripping your muscle apart was terrible. And it was funny because for like three days afterwards, you would see everybody in the transplant office consistently walking around doing that arm rotation thing that you do when your arm is sore to try to work it out. She right just ri- she just like stabbed it right into the bone every time. <laughs> so if you get someone who's good, then tell them thank you because you can really yes. be in a lot of pain after that. Yes. And you almost know when they're good, right? Because you're like, wow, that was a lot less painful than I thought it was. I think that is some common grace. (laughs) If you get somebody who can give you a shot where it's as far less painful as possible, man, you ought to give them a little bit of encouragement. So would you please do that thing? Yes. And get your flu shot. So Jesse, what about you? What are you affirming today? Can I just say before I share my affirmation that uh, I was just recently trying to explain to somebody why we are a top 50 healthcare podcast <laughs> and that we ourselves didn't bestow that title on the reform brotherhood, right, but yeah. that was from a transcendent, so to speak source. It was totally lost in translation. Like, yeah. and actually the more I tried to explain it, the less legitimate it sounded. And I was like, listen, this is for real. They want us to come to Vegas and accept awards for this podcast. I but know. we say, listen, we've got work to do. We can't spare the time. <laughs> Uh, Jesse, I, I, this, this is, this is the spam email that never stops giving. It's just, it's never going to die. It's the most amazing thing that's ever happened to us. I, yeah. I know, I, but I feel like because some, somebody might have joined us on this as their first episode, they're like, I didn't even know. Why is this a healthcare podcast? <laughs> it's not really, it's except not, that no. it is yeah. by way of standards that are outside of ourselves. Yeah. The best that I can figure is I had my role as a medical administrator, as well as my role as a host of this podcast on my LinkedIn profile. And somehow the algorithm in reality... <laughs> Combine those two things, and now we get notices and invitations to come be nominated as the top 50 healthcare provider podcast in the country. It's not even top 50 healthcare podcast, it's the top 50 healthcare firms. So, someone out there thinks that we are not a healthcare podcast, but a healthcare firm. It's so, so great, which goes to show that that person. Obviously, that process is never actually vetted by right. way of listening oh, yeah. to the podcast, but I love it. I'll take it. We don't yeah. get it nominated for a lot of awards. So no, no. the one opinion, time we'll I nominated this. us for an award that was legitimate and that we might actually win, I forgot to tell our listeners to go vote for us. And so all that happened was I spent $10 nominating us and nothing happened. So <laughs> that's that's this that. is the story of our lives. Yeah. Well, what about what about you now? What are you affirming? 
All right. So without delay, my real affirmation is, uh, so I have this reputation. I have to say this. I have this reputation I know on the podcast as affirming things I've always affirmed before. So I'm at risk of that a bit with this, except that I also know that I have a reputation for affirming music. And so this is decidedly a music affirmation. I am affirming there's a brand new Citizens album called The Joy of Being. Now, if you've listened before, you've heard me reference this album because the same band did this, what they call like a, a iPhone sessions, I think, where they did just acoustic and piano version. This is the full band version of the album. It's called The Joy of Being. And it is amazing because it is this amalgamation of pure celebration, pure bright joy of the gospel and the music and the intonation, the cadence matches that pure joy. So I'm recommending this album. I can't imagine that anybody would be disappointed in this. And beyond that, I know that I also have the reputation of recommending music that has screaming in it, which is also my great joy, but that is not this album. So I'm right. hoping that people will find a broader appeal in this. So Go check out The Joy of Being by The Citizens. All right. I, I may do that. I may. You would like it, actually. I mean, I actually have thought that there's a, a couple of pieces on this album where it would be great for congregational singing. There's certainly some stuff that's just great for praise and worship in the private sense. But if I were to say to somebody, where should you start in this album? I, I hesitate to this because I know artists work like incredibly hard to craft an album. It's a story. It's part of their lives and they order everything in a way that's particular. But I'm going to say, start with track six, which is the light of your grace, because it's like, it's dancey and it's this wonderful celebration of the gospel. The, the lyrics are so theologically strong that it's almost like traditional hymnody, but it's got a little bit of a groove to it. So I would say, start there and see how that hits you. And then just worship, enjoy this album because it's, it's so much about the gospel and it's got the gospel in this like way that's like really, really forward. I think that the gospel should be forward in everything we're doing. Yeah. And so I love that it's just right front and center. So go check out the light of your grace in particular. If you're looking for a place to start, you're like, I don't know. I've never heard of these guys before. Some weirdo on this podcast recommended it. Go and do this. I, I saw recently on our Facebook group that people were evaluating my previous recommendations that involve screaming music. Yeah. And it was definitely hit or miss. It was. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, screaming music is one of those things that is hit or miss. Like either you are into it or it makes zero sense to you. So that, that's a good way of saying it. So funny you say that because what happened is my wife, who's also a part of the Facebook group, saw that some people had listened to it and there was mixed opinions. Then she went and listened to it and she actually, like we had like a conversation which were like, it was literally one of those times where she's like, we need to talk about something real quick. And I was like, <laughs> Oh, oh no. what's going on? And she was like, I listened to this song. I just don't understand you. I just don't <laughs> understand how people screaming or do not sound angry. And so like, I tried to explain it, but it, I don't, I'm not sure that I was particularly articulate. So this is not like that. This is not like that at all. So go, go pick up the joy of being by the citizens. I think you'll be immeasurably blessed by it. Nice, 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 nice. Let's do some denials real quick. What do you got? So uh, we, this is a, a sort of a repeat, um, repeat denial on my part, I guess I'm denying overblown headlines in the news media. So fair, fair. I, I uh, spotted this article on a friend of mine's Facebook and here's the, um, here's the headline that displays on Facebook. Uh, it says Senator Ben Sass unloads on Trump in a call 
with constituents. And then in quotation says, a TV-obsessed, narcissistic individual. So it's indicating that that's something he said about uh, President Trump. And, you know, I'm a huge fan of Ben Sass. Um, he is a Reformed Christian. He graduated from Westminster Seminary in California. Right um, his, his sort of civics lessons that he gives uh, in almost every venue he has an opportunity to in terms of official court hearings, like he started his time off, right? Time in the confirmation hearing of uh, judge, hopefully soon to be justice, uh, Amy Comey Barrett. He used like five minutes of his 30 minutes of time, which that's really precious time to, to literally give like a civics lessons to say, like, here's the role of a judge. Here's the role of this. Right. And he does that in a lot of different venues. And I really appreciate that. It's funny because I went and I listened to this because I also have a vested interest in the fact that uh, Senator Sass has been clear that he's a Christian. He He's not shy about it at all. So if, if Senator Sass is doing something behind closed doors, um, that is not becoming of a Christian, then that's something that I would be interested in knowing. So that way I can, you know, qualify my support of him to say, yeah, I know right. that he claims to be a Christian, but he also has done this. And I listened to the audio and it's absolutely like the most respectful unloading I've ever heard. He basically <laughs> starts off and it it's like a town hall with his, it's like a phone in town hall that he does frequently with his constituency. And some right. woman asks like, why are you always so critical of president Trump? And he started off, he said, well, I want to start off by saying we should really be praying for all of our elected officials and especially for President Trump. He has a really Amen. hard job. So like Amen. he starts off by saying like we, he has a hard job. I really respect him. We agree on a lot of things um, and we should be praying for him. And then the, then the unloading was like, and, you know, sometimes he says things that aren't so great. And, you know, I don't think he's really a conservative, like really well-reasoned, soft-spoken things. And he did say things like, I don't understand why we would uh, sell a narcissistic TV-obsessed individual to the American public. I don't know why we thought that was a good idea, um, which is true. Like, there's no doubt that Pre President Trump is narcissistic. I think he would tell you he's narcissistic. He may not use those terms, but he certainly thinks that that he should be the center of attention. And he's very obsessed with TV. Like he's a TV right. star. He he basically invented reality TV in a lot of ways. Um, so I, I just thought it was funny that this this headline, which should have said it shouldn't have even been a headline. It shouldn't have even been a story. It should have been uh, maybe like a summary that said. Uh, ben Sass explains why he is sometimes critical of President Trump. <laughs> like that that's the story. But instead it was Ben Sass unloads on President Trump. So I, I just say this to um maybe contrast with another uh headline that came out that is not so great. It's about uh CCM artist Chris Rice, who's now been accused of uh, sexual assault of a minor when he was um, leading worship at a camp, I think a youth camp of some sort, several years ago. Um, the only reason I bring that up is that we should look at these headlines and we should realize that headlines are designed to entice us to click. That's the point of yes. them. In news exactly. media, they're designed to entice us to read the article. In right. internet, they're designed to entice us to click. And so they usually contain a kernel of truth buried under a huge amount of inf inflammatory material designed to get us to click. And so whether it's a it's a a relatively innocuous headline like Ben Sass unloads on President Trump or something more serious accusing Chris Rice of sexual assault of a minor, we should be 
we should exercise discernment in looking at those headlines and recognize that they're not always as they appear. And there was one study that I read where it was actually like something like uh, 70 or 80 percent of people form their entire opinion about an article and will act, will basically move forward as though they've read the article simply by reading the headline. And with the propensity of headlines to be exaggerated at best and downright false at worst, we really need to be more discerning and more critically, critically thinking than that. Right on. That's like a good, that's a really good uh, denial. I was an affirmation. That's a really good <laughs> denial, like across the board. Because, I mean, we it's like we all recognize, at least intellectually, that so many of headlines are are written in such a way to be clickbait. Right. But we still fall prey to them. Like we still want to yeah. click and see what is it that it's being said here. So I think it is incumbent upon the Christian to be particularly discerning. That yeah. in many ways is the mark of a Christian that they would be discerning in right. the way they consume media. And so that's a really good and challenging denial right there. Man. Well, thank you. I wish I thought of that myself. What about you? What are you denying? Yeah, well, once again, mine's going to be underwhelming compared to yours. That's just well, how we're going to do this. We'll just have to have you go first next time. Okay, that's great. So I wish we could start this over. <laughs> so <laughs> mine, is, mine is somewhat uh, lighthearted. I, I get, it is a denial. I'm denying, of course, like, well, we're not, of course. I'm denying, like, false theology. But I've come up with something that I hope that we can propagate or promulgate across, like, our listenership. And that is, I think we need some way to express that we're in the presence or we're hearing or we're reading false, heretical, or otherwise misguided theology in a way that acknowledges that we're reading it, but it's not too over the top. And so I'm going to take a risk here because I'm going to try to explain something that Uh you will know intimately, but that I'm worried that might get lost in translation. So my parents at one point had this dog that was awesome. And this particular dog was a small dog. Like it was a, well, she was a rather large dog for her size. (laughs) (laughs) She was meant to be a small dog, but she was on the upper end, the upper bound of the spectrum for weight. She was a solid sausage like dog, but she's a wonderful dog. And the thing that I loved about her, one of the many things is if you picked her up, which she was happy for you to do, and you grabbed her and held her close. This is getting so weird. Uh, if you if you kind of like hugged her or snuggled her in, so to speak, she would make a noise, and the noise was not disagreeable. <laughs> See, you know what I'm talking about, but nobody else is this finding is this a, interesting. This is a common noise that all Westies make. Is our, it really? Our Westie does it now too. Okay, so if you grab if you were to grab this dog and and kind of just hold her close. She would make a noise. It wasn't a noise that was disagreeable. It was almost just a kind of a noise of acknowledgement. And so if you, if you kind of compressed her, hold her close, she would make a noise. And it was kind of like a growl, a guttural noise. But again, it wasn't an angry noise. And so what I've done is I've appropriated this noise. And now I'm using this for when I hear theology that is just off the mark. I make the sound. I'm gonna to try to make the sound oh, for the sake of like the argument. But it's uh, this gonna be is really gonna be my new ringtone. When you get a, when I get a text uh, message from you, this is what my phone's gonna do. Oh my gosh! All right, so you you know the dog, you I know do. the sound. So I do. you'll have to be the judge of whether or not this is accurate. But so, it's something kind of like this. Ready? It's gonna be quiet for a second. It's gonna be like this. Yeah, like, kind of like that. So maybe a little less strained, a little bit yes, less strained. Yes, it's not an angry noise. The dog was not mad right. that you grabbed her. It was more kind of like that. I find this awkward that you're doing this to me. Yeah, it's like slight annoyance. Yes, yes. It's kind so of it's, like. It, uh, let me see if I can do it. It's like. Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> I feel 
like that's more of like the people version. Yeah. Because there, there, there was like a, it was like a, <laughs> like, but that's not, that sounds like it's, it's angry. It's not angry. No, it's so, not angry. Yeah. So I'm denying, of course, like false theology, misguided theology, but I'm in some ways smuggling in an affirmation that I think we should all get behind of like a noise that we make. So like you hear it and you just make that noise. So like yeah. now my wife knows if I make that noise when somebody's saying something, it's a signal that this is a slightly off the mark or it's, it's not exactly like right on. Yeah. The noise I make when I'm reading uh, heretical or otherwise false theology, I- I'm going to push the microphone back a little bit. It's okay. something like this. Oh, come on. <laughs> Followed by angry typing like this. That's that's the noise I make when that's I read I, false theology. Do you think it's fair that like we should get a signal? Like we should yeah. make a signal that's like, it, it shouldn't be obnoxious. It should just be the kind of thing that like subtly references that what you're hearing, you feel does not comport with the yeah. scriptures. And that, but it also lets those who maybe per, perhaps are your loved ones around you into the fact that you were processing that real time and you were disagreeing with what things being said or being read. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that uh, scene from Jurassic park one, where Dennis Nedry's meeting with the guy and they're they're yes. working out this deal. Yes. And he's like, I've got Dodson here. And he's like, see, nobody cares. That <laughs> yeah. exchange happens in our household on like a weekly or daily basis <laughs> where I'm like, Ashley, listen to this quote from this this book. And I read it and she's like, no, nobody cares right now, Tony. Nobody cares. So or sometimes I'll be at work and I'll like slam my book down on the table and I'll look around to see if anyone else is as angry about this false teaching that I'm reading. <laughs> That's so and good. And nobody even knows I'm there. Nobody even looks up from whatever they're doing. That's so good. So. Because like, we're not, we're not trying to be jerks about this. There is a standard. I think we promoted that for a long period of time. Yeah. Like when we talk about theology and we're studying it, obviously the scriptures are very explicit in what they mean. God has given us particular direction. So how do we communicate that in a way that's loving, but at the same time saying, yeah, I fundamentally disagree with yeah. what's happening right here in a way, again, that, that provides some context for being loving with respect to that disagreement. There was another noise that that, that dog's uh, sibling also made. Uh, for some reason, if you moved quickly toward that dog, this dog, as far as I know, had never been seriously struck by anyone in the world. It's the sweetest no. little dog. No, but if you sure. move too quickly, it flinched like you were going to slap it in the face and it would go, <laughs> it would make that noise. So I'm, that's the noise I'm going to choose to make when I read something heretical. I'm gonna, they're going to be like, uh, the, the son is subordinate to the father in, in the economy, but not in the ontology. I'm going to be like, <laughs> that's going to yeah. be the noise I make. I like that. Yeah, that's good. That. Actually, that was like shockingly good. <laughs> we I'm, I'm really fearful that I've this practiced. whole segment is falling completely flat because people don't know these animals, but we'll put up pictures. That, I have to find pictures. Oh my goodness. That's, that's right on. But I still stand by the fact I stand by this principle. We need a signal people. Yeah. What is that signal that we can all use? It, but you should do it like the baseball players where it's like you tug on your earlobe a little oh, bit. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's not bad. Like the sign to steal second or maybe yeah. like a Yeah. Like three amigos style. Yes. Is that three amigos? Yeah, that's a classic scene, man. <laughs> we have a lot of movies that I need to have make you watch when you're here next time. Oh, that my scene goodness. from Three Amigos, man. They, they, he's like, caw, caw, and the guy's all the guy's all distracted. He's like, look over here, look over here. <laughs> that's so this good. This is heresy. So that's here's the, the that's thing. the signal now. Here's the thing. I don't know if people like what's just happened in the, the course of this podcast, or if yeah. they're like, please 
for the love of God himself, will you get to the topic that you said you were going to talk about? I have no idea. I have no idea how long we've been talking, so we should probably just get into it. Yeah. So we're, we're doing this series on communion and we talked last week, you should go back and listen to that. We had kind of, I hope was a primer on, well, let's talk about what communion is. How do we even explain this thing, especially to somebody who's not familiar with Christian culture or does not know the essential belief systems of what it means to be a Christian? How do we explain? I think we even talked about like this elevator pitch. If yeah. you have 30 seconds to really compartmentalize what it means. Can you do that? And can you do that in a way that's cogent and articulate? And of course, again, comports with the scriptures. And so now we're moving on in this series to talk about well, what are different viewpoints of communion and right or wrong. I thought, let's start with what is super fun. Let's talk about transubstantiation yes. and the real presence. Let's just get after it right away. Here's a particular viewpoint of what it means to participate in the Lord's Supper. Yeah. So we're going to get into it, but I want to say at the outset, um, I want to just preempt this. We'll, we'll discuss some of the specifics later, but it is commonly held that transubstantiation, which is the, the formal view of the Roman Catholic church, which, uh, would kind of claim a monopoly on the term or the concept of real presence. Uh, it's commonly understood that this is the most ancient view, that this was the universal view of the early church, right. um, which is not true. So we're, we're going to talk a little bit about that later. We're going to go through some examples that I've got um, that kind of demonstrate that at the very least, there were other views floating around in the early church. Um, I actually think you, with a lot more foundation to it than we have time to give, you can actually prove that this wasn't even the dominant view in the early church. For sure. Um, but I want to say that now, just in case for some reason, somebody stops listening and all they get is the Roman Catholic view is not the dominant view in the early church. It was not the default view that was held by the earliest Christians. That's worth the cost of, of this podcast just to hear that. But that said, the, the view that becomes formally known as transubstantiation and that sort of develops into it is a view that is, is fairly ancient. It's, it's not as though that view wasn't present in, in some of the earliest testimony of the church. Um, there, there was always a view within the church that held that when Christ says, this is my body and he institutes the Lord's supper, that, that in some real sense, his physical body was present in, in what you were eating. Um, we're going to talk yes. about the, the Lutheran view, which is commonly, but I think erroneously called consubstantiation. Um, later in a different episode. But the idea that the, the the physical piece of bread you are eating was no longer bread and was actually flesh, and the, the liquid that you were drinking, the wine that you were drinking was no longer wine, it was actually blood, that is a view that has very ancient testimony within the church. Um, obviously, we don't believe that's true, or this would be the Roman Catholic Brotherhood and not the Reformed Brotherhood. But... True. Uh, we would be dishonest if we didn't acknowledge that this, this I'll say it, this heresy has ancient roots in the church. Right. Man, you are super good at teasing things. Like we didn't even <laughs> get to like a basic definition and you were all over it. All right. So let's start with this. So if we're trying to explain this, I'll give what I think is like uh, the definition from like the Jesse standpoint. Transubstantiation, which by the way, is kind of a, a super cool sounding term, but yeah. if it were not heretical, it'd be even cooler. Transubstantiation is the teaching that during the mass, and we're going to talk about this particularly in the Catholic expression because it's where we see it most predominantly, that during the mass at the consecration in the Lord's Supper, the elements of the Eucharist, that is the bread and the wine 
are transformed into the actual body and actual blood of Jesus and that they're no longer bread and wine, but they only retain their appearance right. of bread and wine. So that's where the name comes from, of course. There's an actual transformation of the substance. And the term real presence, quote unquote, is used by Roman Catholics to refer to Christ's physical presence in the form of the bread and the wine that have been transubstantiated into his literal body and blood. And I want to start by saying, just in case anybody thinks that we're going a little bit too extreme with that definition, I want to quote from paragraph 1376 of the Catechism of the Catholic Church, oh, which states, boom. according to the Council of Trent, this is, their, this is their own summarization, quote, because Christ our Redeemer said that it was truly his body that he was offering under the species of bread, it has always been the conviction of the Church of God and this holy council now declares again that by the consecration of the bread and the wine, there takes place a change of the whole substance of bread into the substance of the body of Christ, our Lord and Savior, and of the whole substance of the wine into the substance of his blood. This change of the holy Catholic Church has fittingly and properly called substantiation, end quote. So yes. just to emphasize that this is, to your point, a, a position that's been held for a very long time and that we're not trying to bring interpretation to this because I think that for like the average Protestant, they're going to say, because we're so used to thinking about this symbolically, they're going to say, how can anybody think that this is actual representation? That's like an actual trans substantiation or transmutation of these elements into the body and bread. That's actually what we're talking about. Right. These, these are becoming, this is Jesus himself, his own blood, his own body, as strange as that sounds, maybe to, to particular ears. This is actually the position that we're talking about. We're not trying to be metaphorical here. Right. We're talking about a literal representation. Yeah. And, you know, the fact that we have to talk about these specific categories that I'm going to go into next actually is evidence that proves that this view was not universally held in the early church. So one, yes. one side note before I go forward with that, the, the Eastern Orthodox view of the Eucharist more or less is the same as the Roman Catholic view. Uh, yes, they right refuse to define in terms of substance and accidents and this sort of m metaphysical Aristotelian transition that happens, which is what I'm going to talk about in a second. They refuse to define it in such terms. So it's not accurate to call their view the transubstantiation view. But if you look at what they actually believe is going on in the um, in the the actual act of the supper and the consecration of the host. It's very similar in terms of what's going on, but they don't use the same mechanics to explain what's going on. Right. They're much more comfortable, as they are in general, kind of punting to mystery to say, we don't really understand how, but this is what what is in what what it is is what it is. We don't know how it gets there, but it is what it is. So but the fact that they won't use the Aristotelian metaphysics that are necessary for the Roman Catholic view actually demonstrates that the Roman Catholic view is novel in the church because yes. this Aristotelian metaphysic is not something that the earliest church probably would have even been aware of on a conscious level, let alone actively adapted. And so to understand the transubstantiation view, to give it a little bit more technical feat than what we've already done, you have to understand a little bit about Aristotelian metaphysics and physics. In Aristotelian philosophy and in Aristotelian scientific views, everything in the world, everything that exists has what's called accidents or uh, outward attributes. And so generally speaking, these outward attributes 
are generated or caused or are a manifestation of the inward substantial reality of a thing. And so the reason that the wood that can, you know, my desk is made of is hard is because wood has this essential quality of hardness that then right. manifests as an accidental quality of hardness that's approachable by the senses. And that, that ability to apprehend it by the senses is really important. Yes. What actually is interesting about the Roman Catholic view is what's really one of the more miraculous elements uh, of their view is that what happens in the Eucharist is that the substance of the elements change, but the accidents do not. And even in terms of thinking about God and the Holy Spirit and, and Jesus and the incarnation, even in those mysterious miracles, that's not the case. Even in the incarnation, the accidents are always produced by the substance. But in the Eucharist itself, there's a special uh, miracle happening where the substance, the inward reality of this bread and of this wine become, become Jesus Christ. They become the body and blood of Christ, but the outward, the outward accidents of uh, the bread and the wine remain. And so that's why when you, you know, if you want to, you think you're being really clever and you're like, well, it still tastes like bread. They're like, well, of course it tastes like bread, dummy. The accidents don't change. <laughs> right. Right. So what's interesting, and, and this is just more evidence, and we're going to go through some specific examples, but this is more evidence is that before all of this theology was really like finalized and formalized at the, the fourth Lateran council, there were all sorts of accounts of people who took a drink of the consecrated wine and spit it out because it not only did the substance change, but it actually tasted like blood and it was actually thick like blood. So, so the, to act as though in the earliest church and universally, this substance accidents relationship uh, and this transformation of the substance without the transformation of the accidents to say that that's universal is just plainly false, even within yes. their own documentation. And the right. main evidence is that we have these accounts and they're not like one-off accounts. There's a fair amount of accounts of people, people reporting that the blood actually tastes like blood and the, the flesh actually tastes like flesh. Of course, we don't think that that's true, but their theology was so confused that people yes. thought and were, were operating under the impression that that's what could happen is that the blood right. could taste like blood because it's really yes. blood. But the accidents have changed too. And then also the fact that the Eastern Orthodox Church has never affirmed this sort of accident-substance distinction. If you don't have this accident-substance distinction, you don't have transubstantiation. And we clearly don't have that in the earliest testimonies of the church. Right on. In some ways, like this just sound a bit like scandalous and shocking, right? Right. Like to to most people, because it is in that way. It's really strange. And uh, I, I like what you said there. Like we need to evaluate this from like a, a logical perspective it, that in, in addition to like a, a spiritual or like scriptural perspective, because the, uh, see, I struggle with this because it, it is just so strange. Yeah. Like that, <laughs> even in hearing you describe that, all I can think of is how, if we're talking about Catholic mass, the mass contains like a series of rituals that's leading up to the Lord's right. supper, which also contains like a reenactment of the sacrifice of Christ. In their perspective, all this stuff is logically consistent, but it's all super strange. It does not comport with the scriptures right. because transubstantiation is going to state that the substance of the elements are miraculously changed, even though their appearance is not. In fact, like if you ask any good Catholic or you even ask the Pope himself, they would say like the bread and the wine appear as bread and wine right. under close scientific examination. Right. But the true substance is a mystically the body and the blood of Christ. Right. 
And so synonymous with this transubstantiation is this idea of this doctrine of real presence then, because if you're going to make that claim, then what you also have to purport by way of necessary logical outworking is that where transubstantiation is the process of the change, the real presence is the result of that change. So in other words, the doctrine of the real presence states that the bread and the wine contain the actual presence of Christ in bodily form as the result of the process of that transubstantiation. So like, I clearly cannot say that word anymore because it's just like totally It's a tough word. So Roman Catholicism in particular states that the incarnation of Christ himself, where Jesus was a man, but contained an invisible divine nature is analogous to the doctrine of the real presence. And I think what we have to say is we have to evaluate that claim. I mean, in some ways that's what we're doing here is evaluating that outworking in, in, in terms of the representation of the Lord's supper. Now, I think I mentioned this before in this podcast, but not long ago, I read a, an article that I found like mind blowing and like fascinating. And it was because what we said last time in that, when we talk about the Lord's supper and we talk about in particular transubstantiation, this is where we see like the outward manifestation, the outward working of what we believe that's inward or our process of understanding or processing theological data. And that is, I read an article recently where the Roman Catholic church had to, to basically rule on, well, how long is the body of Jesus present in your metabolic system? Because that's a real thing they have to weigh out with. Like in terms of like to, to cut a little bit, to, to be um, move forward a bit, we don't have to weigh out that same type of consideration in the Protestant worldview, but because if we're going to say that when you partake of the body of Christ, if that body is real, that is when you consume the bread, that's actual flesh of Christ, then we have to start to contend with, well, how long is it actually the flesh of Christ in your system and how long before it's broken down? This is something that's unique to the Roman Catholic church, but at least they're being consistent with this worldview. It's super strange. Yeah, But I'm trying to bring this up to say, like, these are all things that have to be contended with if you're going to take this stance. And now let me be clear. I think if you were to present the technical view of this to your average Roman Catholic, they would actually not believe you that this is this is what the Roman Catholic yeah, teaches. Yeah, for church sure. Teaches. You're right. And, you know, this you, as you're pointing out, there's all sorts of weird, almost like theological side effects that happen because of this theology, but those theological side effects also help to demonstrate for us the lack of this theology in the early church. And what you're pointing out is, is an example is this is, this is where you get into the discussion of how is the, how is the sacrament operative? Is it operative ex opere operato, which means by the working of the work, meaning that regardless of who it is that eats it, what their what their faith status is or their perspective, it still is what it is and it does what it does always automatically or almost mechanically. And the Roman Catholic view, even though they've tried to take, you know, take steps to backtrack this a little bit, when you look at the reflection on this in the early church, in those who do hold this kind of view, it's clear to them 
in most cases that this is an automatic process that happens irrespective of the faith of the person eating the bread or irrespective right. of the even the faith of the priest who's who's performing the rite all of it happens automatically as a result of an indelible empowering that God has given to the priest to make this transformation so much so that there's a reflection on what do you do if a dog runs into the church and jumps right. up on the altar and right. steals a piece of bread what's the proper protocol for that um it it results in there was this article that i saw being passed around it was really sad because it was being passed around by an evangelical and they were like well look at the faith of these nuns but there was somewhere where um some high profile roman catholic church one of the priests tripped or something and dropped huge amounts of the host and spilled a huge amount of the wine on the ground, which is just a really big deal. And they have all these protocols that kind of go into place and how to clean it up. And again, they're incredibly consistent with how they think about this. And they were, this article was pointing out that this group of nuns, rather than jump into action, figuring out how to clean it up, they knelt down and they prayed to it. They worshiped it because it was, yes. it was, this was the Lord in front of yes. them. And so what we see, and th- this is the first point that I, one of the first points I want to bring up is it's funny because Augustine is often held up as like the quintessential Roman Catholic or like the proto Roman Catholic for people who are, are saying like, well, the Roman Catholic church comes along a little bit later because of, you know, the papacy, Augustine is still held up as the, the like main figure in this. But what's interesting is if you look at what Augustine says on this, I'm not going to read this whole quote because it's quite extensive, but Philip Schaff, who was an 18th century uh, German theologian, German reform theologian, wrote an article for the Prince, one of the Princeton um, reviews called the Patristic Doctrine of the Eucharist. And he points out that Augustine actually draws this distinction between those who, um, who abide in Christ, those who are genuinely, truly Christians who trust Christ and those are to not, or who do not. And what Augustine says is that those who are apart from Christ, they eat the bread of the Lord, where those who are in Christ eat the Lord who is bread. And so even Augustine is saying, wait a second, no, 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 no. This bread is just bread for those who don't believe. Right. So he still believes that for those who do believe it's a physical, concrete, actual presence of the Lord. But he's he's denying in some senses this ex opera operato view, which is ironic because he's actually the one who pioneered this in the area of baptism in some ways. But even Augustine is saying, no, 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 this this mechanical view. And he was responding to the Donatists who held a much more mechanical view than he did. This mechanical view where the bread becomes the body of Christ irregardless or irrespective of any faith on the part of the partaker, even a mouse could be feasting on the body of the Lord. If he stole a piece of the post, all of these things that are part and parcel and 100% necessary for the current Roman Catholic view to be true. Augustine himself denies fundamental aspects of that. So we've, we've got Augustine. um, I'm not going to go into it, but Justin Martyr calls the Eucharist a sacrifice of Thanksgiving. One of the things that's central to the mass, we talked about this a little bit last week, but one of the things that's central to the mass is not just transubstantiation, but transubstantiation actually serves the purpose of making this possible is that Christ is being, Christ's sacrifice is being represented. Um, It's not quite true to say that Christ is sacrificed over and over again, but Christ's sacrifice is being represented Um, the way that it was described to me in terms of, um, in terms of a, Uh, an analogy by a Roman Catholic priest that I was talking to is it's kind of like when you partake of the Eucharist, 
you are transported back in time to the foot of the cross. And so the sacrifice of Christ, because this is really his body and blood, which is being being sacrificed in your presence, you're witnessing the sacrifice on the cross because that's what's happening in front of you. Justin Martyr doesn't seem to think that that was the case. He seems to right. think that the, the praise and the thanksgiving was the sacrifice, right? So we have very early testimony of people who believe other things about the Eucharist and not just these auxiliary figures, but people like Augustine who would apparently hold some very different views about central elements of transubstantiation. Yeah, that's, that's well said. So we should get into some of this stuff because I think there's a lot we could say about the refutation of this particular worldview with respect to the Lord's Supper. And I think that's helpful in critiquing it. And it sounds like we're just really going after Catholics in particular. And in some respects we are because yes. this is where the perspective is most widely held. And I would say like most broadly or maybe even specifically articulated because there's a lot that's been said about this particular view. And I, I think this is helpful. Like we need to think about this as Christians, what this means and how we understand it when we weigh it against the scriptures, because there's, there's so much that you said, like actually you covered a lot of ground. Like there's no indication in my opinion that the disciples thought the elements were transformed. Right. I mean, there's no indication in the biblical accounts of the last supper, that the disciples thought the bread and the wine changed in the actual body and blood of, of Christ. And so the question we have to ask is, are we to believe that the disciples who were sitting right there with Jesus actually thought that what Jesus was holding in his hands was his literal body and blood. Right. And if, if we don't think that, then at what point did we cross over in terms of historicity to make that change? Right. And so I, I think like, can I be somewhat inflammatory? Like, is that okay at this Please point? Please do. Okay. So here's the thing when I come up against this viewpoint that I always ask those who hold it. And that is, and this is going to be inflammatory. So uh, you feel free to critique this perspective. I would say like the trans transubstantiation is a violation in particular of Levitical law. And yes. so like the Roman Catholic interpretation of the Eucharist requires, requires that the participant eat human flesh and drink human blood. And Roman Catholicism teaches that the bread and the wine become of course, the actual body of Christ. It's something we said. So essentially this amounts to cannibalism. Now I'm being right. like purposefully inflammatory here. So let me quote from Leviticus 17, 14. For as for the life of all flesh, its blood is identified with its life. Therefore, I say to the sons of Israel, you are not to eat the blood of any flesh for the life of all flesh is in its blood. Whoever eats of it shall be cut off. Yeah. So it would, it would appear on the face and I'm being, this is somewhat straw man, but, but stick with me for a second. It would certainly appear that the Roman Catholic view is in contradiction to the Old Testament scripture since it advocates the eating of the blood of Christ. So to the Roman Catholic Church, it's not just symbolic. We've already talked about that. It's the actual eating and drinking of the body and the blood of Christ. Now, I'm going to say right off the top, I understand there are counter arguments to what I've just said here. And many of those counter arguments, even among my friends who I consider to be close, you know, friends of mine who I love desperately, some proponents of transubstantiation would object by claiming that Jesus had instituted the new everlasting covenant in which the sacrifice body and blood of Christ was right. reality. So yeah. therefore, because it was a new covenant, it was also the sacrifice body and blood. But I would still say this cannot work because the new covenant was not yet instituted until after the death yeah. of Christ as the scripture states. So if we go back to Hebrews chapter nine, and it was for this reason, he is the mediator of a new covenant in order that since a death was taken place for the redemption of the transgressions, 
that were committed under the first covenant. Those who have been called may receive the promise of eternal inheritance. For where a covenant is, there must also be the necessity of the death of the one who made it. So therefore, we conclude that the Levitical law was still in effect because the new covenant had not yet been established. So the Roman Catholic position would have Jesus himself violating Old Testament law by having the disciples drink the blood if it were in fact literal blood. So let me like pause there for a second and say, how inflammatory have I been so far? (laughs) I mean, I don't think there's any Roman Catholic listeners, so I don't think anybody's (laughs) going to fight you too hard on this. Well, but, but nonetheless, like I'm purposely trying to draw out what I think are like the essential elements and saying like, we have to take this at face value essentially because the transubstantiation view is all about face value, isn't it? Yeah. And you know, I I think this brings up another important, important evidence from the early church, right? One of the things that the early church was accused of by the Romans was being cannibals because they read, they read some of these passages. They heard them talking about drinking blood and the response from the Roman, the early Christians, people like Justin Martyr and Tertullian, the response was not, well, yeah, but it's okay because Jesus said it was okay. Or even, well, yeah, but the blood is only substantially present and not accidentally present, right? Yes. It was none of this. The answer was, wait a second, hold on, hold on, hold on. We're not eating, we're not We're not cannibals. What are you talking about? This is a ritual that we do that based on this, we eat bread, we, you know, we drink wine and we through that or in that we partake of the Lord's flesh in that he nourishes us, right? So if the Roman Catholic view is true, and it was present in the earliest testimony of the church, we would anticipate mm-hmm. a very different response from the apologists right. upon the accusation of cannibalism. Um, not because we think that cannibalism is okay, obviously, or anything like that, but because the accusation was these people, these people eat, pe- they eat people, they eat blood, they drink flesh, or they drink blood right. and they eat flesh. The response was not a response to say, wait a second, you don't understand how this is okay. You don't understand the metaphysics. You don't understand the, the miracle here. The response was, we don't eat blood. We don't, we don't, we don't do yes. that. That's not right. what we are. So I, I think that in itself speaks volumes against the, the Roman Catholic narrative that the earliest church, and, and I, I feel like I'm harping on this, but there's a reason for it. I've mentioned before on this show that I, uh, I at one time had intended to convert to Roman Catholicism before I went to seminary, um, or before I went to Gordon Conwell, I should say in like 2008, I, I very briefly had decided I was going to convert. And then it was like, literally like a week later, I came to my sense, like, what am I, what am I doing? And the reason that that all started was because I had bought into the narrative that the earliest Christian church basically was the Roman Catholic church, yes, that, that the Roman right. Catholic doctrines of transubstantiation of, uh, the primacy of Peter of apostolic succession, the key Catholic doctrines that those were t- present in the early church. And it was because what I was reading on it was primarily Roman Catholic sources. And I think most Roman Catholics who promulgate that really believe it's true. I don't think that they're blatantly liars. I think they're deceived. Um, they're accountable for the fact that they've been deceived, but they're not trying to lie. They're not propagating something they think is false. They're propagating something they're, they're mistakenly think is true. And the reality is that everywhere you look, where we, if you plug in the Roman Catholic view uh, of transubstantiation, of the, the sacrifice of the mass, almost every century that you look, 
you're going to find evidence that there were other Christians who believed something very different about the Mass. You may find evidence that there was Christians who believed something very similar about the Eucharist as well. But you're going right. to find you're going to find counterexamples of people who believe something different. And here's the kicker: the Church didn't actually think it was that important to define until 1,200 years later. Right. A lot of times we think that the Roman Catholic Church was this well-defined, documented, creedal religion that had everything written down. Everything was promulgated. And that's really not true either. The, the doctrine of transubstantiation was not formally promulgated until the 1200s in the Fourth Lateran Council. The doctrine right. of papal infallibility wasn't actually articulated until like the 1800s. The Marian dogmas didn't come into being until the same around the same time. And the so-called Roman Catholic canon that they say is what the church has always held was never formally defined until the Council of Trent, where they also defined the Roman Catholic doctrine of justification. So a lot right. of a lot of what you hear in the Roman Catholic narrative about how historical their church is really just it's just smoke and mirrors it's pointing to a few selective quotes and there's actually this is a whole different whole different show the whole way they did education in the middle ages was designed to obscure some of these things they did yes. these things they did what's called floral asia where they would have literally just a list of out of context quotes by the church fathers well you know what wasn't in there all the quotes where augustine says that no if you don't believe in christ of course you're not eating the body and blood of jesus right. all they had was the document where it says yeah if you believe in christ you're eating the real doc the real body of jesus so it's important for us to root these things historically because they're are a lot of reformed Christians, reformed Christians particularly, I think are susceptible to this. They want to be like the earliest church. They believe mm -hmm. whether this is good or bad, there's a belief that the closer we get to the era of the apostles, the more accurate the church was. I don't think that's a true historical look. I mean, even just in the book of Corinthians, in the age of the apostles, there was all sorts of screwed up stuff going on. Right. But there's this impulse to say, well, they've got to they've got to be closer. You know, these, some of these people knew the apostles. They had to have been getting it right. The reality is that that premise is probably not true. But on top of that, even if it were true, the Roman Catholic Church is not what the early church looked like. It's not even right. really what the Eastern Orthodox Church looked like in many ways. And it's important for us to note that. Right. That's well said. I mean, that, that kind of history, I think, is important to bring to bear on our ability to process this information and to understand what it means to, again, follow the scriptures with, I think what we're after is we're after extreme fidelity, right? We want to understand what Jesus meant, particularly in this, what we consider to be one of two sacraments ordinances that he instituted for us to practice. So this is of immense importance. And we're really, I think that's why I wanted, at least for me, wanted to do the series is yeah. to get after that. So I know that time like is waning for us. Like it's, it's marching forward at amazing speed. And so I kind of want to set you up for something because I also have like another contention. So in this idea of like trying to, again, understand a processes and refute this particular worldview, uh, I already spoke about or mentioned this idea of that it being against what is like Levitical law. But can I just drop a statement and just let you go? Is that okay? Let's do it. Are you ready for this? Yes. So here's my statement because I think that you're, you have a particular set of skills this is, this is basically like taken now. I have a particular, particular set. set of skills that makes me a nightmare <laughs> for people like you. Yeah, that was an excellent uh, invitation. Um, but I think you've done some study in this area. But I would argue that transubstantiation is also a violation of the incarnation. Yes. 
Yes. Go. Oh, that's that's the statement. <laughs> yes. I mean, this this is the classic <laughs> argument. And I'm going to I'm going to do that thing where I tease the next episode a little bit. We're going to talk yeah, about this a lot more when we get to Lutheran uh, yes. perspectives, because it was an active, more uh, actually a more aggressive element of the, the debate between Lutherans and Reformed. Um, so we'll talk about more later. But yes, you're right. The 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 Roman Catholic view asserts that the actual body of Christ, right, the, the action, not just and not just the body. It's not yes. like, uh, you know, I could have my body in, in two places if you, you know, cut off my arm and put it over in the other room. My body would technically be in two places. That's not what they're saying. What they're saying is that the actual body and the entire presence of Jesus Christ is present the moment on the altar. And this actually leads in to the next witnesses that I was going to bring up that is actually present on every single altar, every single Saturday or Sunday that they're doing mass is yep. present. And so the, the, uh, the, the principle that the uh, properties of each nature are not communicated to each other is violated in yes. this theology. And this is, this is the next sort of little thing I wanted. These, these two dudes have the best names. So there was a, there was an abbot, uh, in, uh, France named Pascasius Radbertus, right? Radbertus is a, it's a pretty so awesome good. name. So good. And his, his treatise, I'm not going to try to pronounce it, but he wrote a treatise basically, uh, which is called on the body and blood of the Lord. And what Rad, uh, what Radbertus argued was that the moment of consecration, the body of Christ and the element on the altar were not just, um, were not just the same or was not just part of the body was present. They were identical, 100% identical. So right. what you actually had on the altar at the moment of, of the consecration was not a part of Jesus's body, but it was the complete presence of the entirety of Jesus's human person. Of, of the human nature of his person, as well as his soul was present on the altar. And although they don't make as much direct reference to Radbertus at, uh, later on, because, because it all gets filtered through uh, Thomas Aquinas. And so he's the primary person they're referencing when we get to later reflection on this, Radbertus's theology became the, the standard Roman Catholic view that was confirmed at the fourth Lateran council. So this idea that the body on the altar and the body that's in heaven become identical is very important. And it's the official yes. Roman Catholic view. Yes, and so what we have is we have Christ's human body is now not only present in two places at once, but is present all over the world across, across the universe or across the world, uh, anywhere that mass is being celebrated, the full body and presence of Jesus Christ is there. So what we have is a violation of the principle that says that the the attributes of the human nature communicate to the person, but not to the divine nature. And likewise, right. the attributes of the divine nature communicate to the person, but not to the human nature. And so now his human nature is receiving the divine attribute of omnipresence, or the Lutherans will call it ubiquity. But they, it's, it's this confusion of natures that, in my opinion, and in the opinion of most of the Reformed world, violates the Chalcedonian definition in a pretty significant way. And this is important, because what we have is someone who actually was uh, a monk under Radbertus's authority named Rattramus or Rattramnus. He wrote a response where he basically <laughs> said, wait a second, that, that can't be true because, right. because of the Chalcedonian definition, we can't affirm that Christ's body is completely present in two places. That just doesn't make any sense. And what I think is really, um, 
really interesting. And this is, in my opinion, just a nail in the coffin for the Roman Catholic understanding that transubstantiation has always been the default, has always been what the faithful have believed. Ratramnus was not considered a heretic in his day. He was not treated as a heretic. He wasn't kicked out of the monastery, as far as I know. And it wasn't actually until the 11th century that his works were viewed as being heretical. And so he was, I mean, he was writing in the 800s, towards the end of the 800s. So we're totally talking about, we're talking about 200 years later before his views became consistently considered heretical. And then the council, the Fourth Lateran Council was only another 100 years or so later. And so even as late as the 800s and early 900s, we have other people in the church who are believing things that are radically different than what would later be defined as Roman Catholic dogma, which proves conclusively, if you ask me, that this was not the universal view. This right. was not the dominant. I mean, it was the dominant view for sure. But there were always people who believed other things. And to go back to that Phyllis Schaff article, and I'm going to I'm going to upload this article to our website. I've got a copy of it from the archive. He actually makes a compelling argument that not only were the main figures in the patristic testimony, people like Origen, Athanasius, Gregory of Nazianzus, Basil, and Augustine, not only were they not holding to the traditional Roman Catholic transubstantiation view, but he says, and he argues, and I think compellingly, that their view actually only differs from the view of people like Calvin and the modern contemporary reform view in minor details. So it's important because as Reformed Christians, even though we might affirm that the earliest testimony of the church is not necessarily the most accurate, what we also should recognize is that the Roman or the Reformed view of just about everything, right? Covenant theology, justification by faith alone, the authority and the uniqueness of scripture, and now sacramental theology, both involving baptism and the Eucharist or the Lord's Supper, those things were actually the testimony of the earliest Christians and not just auxiliary small figures, but big figures like Athanasius and Augustine. Right. Well said. I wish, I I feel like almost every time we get into these wonderful discussions in the series, I feel like we're always just scratching the surface and I wish we had like six or seven hours to really get into all the meat because there's so many more things that we could say. And I, I think that in particular coming to or bringing to bear like the patristics is really helpful in this discussion. I hope that people will listen to this and maybe some of their interests will be piqued and they'll go and look up some of this stuff for themselves because there's so much more we could say, I think and bring to bear in terms of refutation of like this particular argument, but alas, time escapes us and it's probably time for us us to wind down. But again, I hope that people will go and evaluate what we said here, even test what we said against the scriptures, because I think they'll find that what we're saying is absolutely true. And there's something interesting here. Maybe this is the case with so much of theology where so many, I think uh, the people whom I interacted with that hold this view do not really understand it in its entirety. It's been based out of this sense of tradition or mysticism where some it's easy to hide behind what is quote unquote mystical. If we mean by the fact that that's just a mystery that we cannot understand. Right. I think we have to be careful about making that argument because there's so much, if we believe that we could live a thousand years, right. And that everything that would be necessary for us to live well and to understand is contained in the scriptures, then we have to be really careful about how we use this idea of like mysticism right. when we bring it to bear upon something. Like it's not just a blanket argument for when we don't understand something and we can just like kind of accumulate or aggregate it and put it under this auspice of like, well, it's a mystery, yeah. right? But yeah. really what happens is the blood and the body become Jesus. 
you can't make that argument uh, aside from the scriptures, and you certainly can't hide behind some kind of mystical element to prove it. Yeah. Yeah. So in, in the vein of trying to make sure we have a good elevator pitch, pitch for the stuff we're talking about, my elevator pitch for the transubstantiation view is it's whack and friends don't let friends be cannibals. <laughs> You that's like that? not at all. Yeah, I love that. I mean, that's not at all where I thought you were going to go with that. Yeah. It's great. Yeah, I can't it's add whack. to that. Well, don't. Yeah, I can't add don't. to that. You should. No, I won't. I won't try. That. <laughs> Thank you for making me accountable. <laughs> uh, I feel like that's that's kind of like a distinctive, distinctive like 1990s interpretation yeah. because you're using the word whack. Yeah, definitely. But I like it. Yeah, friends don't let it, friends be cannibals. <laughs> it's a good. It's just a good life principle. Well, Here's here's what I love about this. Cross stitch that on a pillow and put it on your yes. Couch, on your I couch. should get my wife. She's she's an excellent cross stitcher and uh, she's made the kind of things that like hang in your bathroom. That's the kind of thing that should hang up there. It's like true. friends don't let friends be cannibals. Hashtag transubstantiation. Yes, there you go. Yeah, that's so good. And, but here's here's why I love that. As we close, I love it because I, I think at some point as Christians we shouldn't be afraid to say the thing that is the absolute truth and that is like the most representative of what we're talking about. Like why, why, why candy coat that? Why put flowery language around it? Like that's kind of, that's exactly what we're saying. Like in some ways, the whole point of having this conversation was to take the, the view of transubstantiation, which is again, most succinctly manifested by Catholics and say, we're just using the language and we're just evaluating the language based on what you say. Yeah. And what you say is weird. Yes, it is. And, it, it's not just weird. It is definitely against what the scriptures are teaching. I can understand the proclivity to want to believe this. And part of that is like, yeah. would you say that part of this is like Gnostic belief, like coming out of like the early church? Yeah. I mean, I don't know how much of a direct connection there is, but there definitely is uh, an element of sort of this secret knowledge or this secret, yes, right. um, secret access kind of a thing. Um, you know, it's funny because uh, although there are all, are all sorts of accounts for where the word mass comes from, one of the more compelling arguments I've seen is that it actually comes from the uh, Latin word for dismissal. Mm, and and it's because in the early church, and, and we know this is true, in the early church, they dismissed anyone who was not a baptized Christian from the service when it came time to partake of the Eucharist, not and it, so this was included catechumens who hadn't yet been baptized, as well as you know I, I guess occasionally they had like unbelievers who were just kind of checking things out. I guess they had their secret sensitive services too, and um, that that's where it comes from. But it, it did lead, and this is why the Romans thought, oh, man, they must be eating babies, they must be eating people in there, right? Because right. there was this secretive element to what was going on, and even now. If you go if you go to a Roman Catholic church, which I would argue no reformed Christian should ever par- ever even witness the mass. It would be like standing there and watching someone worship Baal. I mean like really don't yes. do it. Don't it means don't I know it's a hard sell. It means don't go to a Roman Catholic wedding. Don't go to a Roman Catholic funeral. I know that's a hard sell. I know that that is an uncomfortable reality, but we're talking about rank idolatry. Um, yes. that's going on. Yes. Well right. Said. So it's, it's not a small thing. And maybe this is something we could talk about more on another show, but it's not a small thing. But that said, if you were to go to a Roman Catholic mass, they're going to prevent you from taking the Eucharist. If they yes. know that you're not a Roman Catholic, yes, because they do believe that there is this element of sort of secret access, which yeah, Protestants bar the table too. 
but there's a different level and a different reason behind why they bar the table. Yeah. Because as an unbeliever, you could really be eating Jesus. You could really be yes. eating his his literal body, and in some sense, being communicated grace through that. Um, so it's it's important for you to remember for us to all kind of remember this is not a straw man. This is not us misrepresenting the Roman Catholic view. We may not have articulated it perfectly, but right. it's it's not a straw man argument. This is the reality of what they believe and teach. Right. We're not creating the categories. Right. Right. I mean, we're just trying to understand and explain them and weigh them against scripture. And again, you've just got me going. Like we could go for another two hours. I, I'm glad you brought that up because one of the things I meant to mention early on in the conversation is that if you in fact truly believe that this is the body and the blood of Christ, then there is some amount, and I'm using it as a representation of that worldview, of appropriate worship that is right. due those elements, right? Because they, again, yeah. they now they've they've been transmuted or transformed into something that was common and normal into something that is actually our Lord and Savior. Right. And therefore, if they fall on the ground, yeah, you ought to have a disproportionate and unmeasured response to how you deal with that right. because the blood of Jesus Christ is now on your floor. So if that were really true, how would you handle that? And so yeah. th this is what logically you have to deal with all of these implications. But I think we're trying to cut it off at its root and say like, well, this is misguided to begin with. And so, and thankfully and graciously as Protestants, we do not have to contend with those particular questions because actually it's a moot point. They're not relevant. So if this sounds unfair, I mean, it's not meant to be. We're, we're, we're basically, again, just holding it against scripture and saying, yeah. what is it that we are to actually believe and understand happens when we partake of the Lord's Supper? That's the whole point of this conversation yes. and this whole series. So I hope that it will inspire people to have, if people are fired up, I hope to have some real discussion then about what these things mean. And if you have a Roman Catholic friend, have some discussion about this. I would love <laughs> to hear from people who yes, say like, yeah. well, I want to ask, like, what is it that you're participating in the mass? What does it actually mean? Yep. How do you know that the Bible is prescribing that particular event that's taking place on the Lord's day? Yeah. These are all questions we should all be able to answer. And so I don't think it's unfair to ask of your Roman Catholic friends, what is going on? You yeah. can just say, what is happening? And yeah. you can use our funny, silly little podcast as maybe the excuse. Like I heard these guys talk about this and I'm just really curious from your viewpoint, explain it to me. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's funny when you said, uh, we didn't create the categories. The first thing that went through my head was if this was fast God stuff, we'd have a song and it'd be like, we didn't create these categories. No, we didn't make them, but we are explaining them. Uh, actually, Listen, we need to get you on that podcast. That was <laughs> really good. That was like a really good, just top of the head, like off the top. Like you just wrote a song there. Yeah. And until you said we didn't create these categories, when you said that, I heard Billy Joel, but not until the moment that you yeah, said it. Yeah. I have that effect on people. Yeah. It was like, <laughs> they hear Billy Joel. <laughs> I, can, I can put songs in their head. Uh, that's so good. So I hope people will stick around because I think we've got so much more to say. And I know this went a little bit long, but one, one, of the thing, <laughs> one of the things that I'd like to emphasize in this series is that this matters. I yes. mean, we always say that, but this matters all so much more. Yeah. I, I really think all Christians really need to weigh out the Lord's table, what we're doing here. And, and I'm just going to be, I, I would say like, I'm bringing the condemnation on myself, like the own conviction that is, I think I've, I've spent far too few or too less time thinking about what this means. Yeah. So if anything that comes out of this, I'm hoping that our brothers and sisters will really weigh out what's happening at the Lord's table. And so that when they approach it the next time, 
they'll be thoroughly equipped to really appreciate, enjoy it, receive it, and celebrate in it in a way that's far more profound than this just idea of like rote behavior or this custom yeah. or this tradition. Yep. So hopefully we'll get there. Hopefully we'll get there. Well, I've enjoyed this. I'm looking forward to continuing uh, this topic. Uh, if you didn't listen to our last episode, uh, which is titled Ordinary Means, uh, make sure you go back and listen to it because that kind of sets up the whole series. And we're going to do at least two more, probably three, maybe even four more episodes kind of going through different views. So I'm Absolutely. looking forward to it. Uh, please come back and listen again. And until next time, honor everyone. Love the Brotherhood. Love the Brotherhood.